runasradio.com. You're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell and Greg Hughes. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 227 with guests Aaron Margosis and Mark Racinovich, recorded Thursday, August 18th, 2011. Run As Radio is produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. You can follow the boys on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. This is Richard Campbell. You're listening to Run As Radio, flying solo this time, and I'm outgunned because on one line, I've got none other than Mark Racinovich, the technical fellow for the Windows Azure group at Microsoft, working on Microsoft's data center operating system. He is a well-known and widely recognized expert in the Windows operating system internals, as well as operating system security and design. Mark is the author of the recently published cyber thriller Zero Day, which I read, and the co-author of the Microsoft Press Windows Internals book, which is on my shelf. I don't know that I've read it. And the co-author of the Sys Internals Administrator's Reference, which I haven't gotten yet. Mark joined Microsoft in 2006 when Microsoft acquired WinInternal Software, the company he co-founded in 1996, as well as SysInternals, where he authors and publishes dozens of popular Windows administration and diagnostic utilities. He's a featured speaker at major industry conferences, including Microsoft's TechEd, WinHEC, and the Professional Developers Conference. Something tells me we'll probably see it build, too. Also on the line, Aaron Margosis is a principal consultant with Microsoft Public Sector Services, where he worked primarily with U.S. federal government customers since 1999. He specializes in application development on Microsoft platforms with an emphasis on security and application compatibility in lockdown environments and is a highly regarded speaker at Microsoft conferences. I saw your session at TechEd, by the way. He is well known for having evangelized running Windows XP as a non-admin and for publishing utilities and guidance to make doing so more feasible. His Make Me Admin script pioneered the concept of a single user account running in both administrative and non-admin contexts, influencing the design of user account control. So it's your fault. Yeah. Uh, Aaron's several security utilities can be downloaded through his blog at blogs.msdn.com slash Aaron underscore Margosis and his team's blog at blogs.technet.com slash FDCC. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks, Richard. Thank you. Good to talk to you both. And uh, I'm in the presence of guys who've worked on very hard and unpopular problems. <laughs> so th this is all about the new SysInternals uh, and MinReference, which thank you, thank you, thank you, because these tools are awesome and I am not worthy. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, w so, uh, uh, Aaron, I've read your blog post on how you got roped into this, but you better tell us because I, I know it's all Mark's fault in the first place. But, uh, you know, what did you do wrong? Yeah, well, Mark went and wrote those tools, you know, and didn't write a big fat book to go with it. And uh, uh, he had a project going on uh, for a while, trying to get a book written uh, with a co-author, and it just never could get off the ground. And uh, after the last um, aborted mission, I just looked at it and said, you know, that, that book absolutely needs to be done. I wish I had time to do it, but I don't have time to do it. Writing a book is, is uh, just way too time-consuming, uh, and especially the way I write. I'm very detail-oriented. It takes a really long time to write an email. Uh, so I knew that writing a book would be um, a lot worse than anything I could expect. And so then I just decided, you know, maybe I can do this, and uh, went ahead and did it. 
So there was a momentary uh, lapse of reason? Yes, a momentary lapse of reason. 3 a.m., I talked myself into, you know, maybe I can do this. And I sent Mark a note saying, hey, what do you think? And uh, he suggested, well, maybe um, write up the process monitor chapter, see if you like it, and let me see how, uh, what your writing looks like. And so I did that, and he liked it a lot. And then uh, I went ahead and you know, <laughs> spent the next two years uh, just working on the book. Spare time, you know, because it's not part of my day job. So I had to, you know, find basically every vacation for the last two years was spent working on the book, you know, hold up in the basement and, um, you know, write until I have to go to sleep, sleep until I'm done sleeping, wake up, go right back to the computer, you know, forgetting about whether it's day or night or anything like that. Well, and, and I mean, I've worked on books years ago and then I learned better. It's not, you don't make any money on these things. This is, it's almost like a work of passion. I, this book needs to exist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Aaron, you're probably not going to do another one, are you? Uh, I look at this as a once in a lifetime experience. Hopefully. And, and I'm presuming uh, this is not a work of fiction, unlike some people's recent publications. Correct. I don't think you put anything <laughs> fictitious in there, did you? No, actually none. Yeah. Um, I actually, well, let me let me just take that back. I w- I would do another book if I could make it my full time day job, right? Where I could spend, you know, eight to nine to ten, eleven hours a day on it and nothing else, and get paid for that. I would do that, but not not as a spare time effort. Yeah, it's it's just hard to that's all you're thinking about the whole time. But it is a book that needed to exist. I mean. For folks who don't know a lot about Sys Internals, maybe this is uh, your area, Mark. Well, what, what, how do you describe Sys Internals? Uh, it's my creative outlet. That's the way I describe it. But a uh, collection of tools that I find useful, fun to write, and I think other people find useful as well for doing things like managing your Windows systems and diagnosing problems on Windows systems, monitoring application performance. Yeah, just try to crack why Outlook went away. You know, that's, I, I, I can't tell you how many times I fire up Process Monitor to say, where did you go? What are you doing right now? And why is none of that involving me? Yep. Yeah, that Process Monitor uh, is probably the number one troubleshooting tool. Mm. Uh, not probably, it is. So does the book actually dig into what you look for? What do these numbers all mean? Like helping to understand all this? Or where, where should we jump to in the book itself? Um, well, the book... Actually, so there's, the book serves two purposes. One is to describe all the features of every tool because uh, some of the features are hard to discover, and once you do discover them, you might not be sure what they're for. So the book includes examples of how to use the features, how they might be useful to you, and then it also has some tips along the way about you know, uh, scenarios that you might want to address with uh, particular tools, like typical command lines for the command line tools, uh, some useful features that, our go-to features in some of the tools, like one of the features in Process Monitor I think a lot of people aren't really familiar with is the tree view, which is something that I always use to go and find a particular process in a trace really easily without having to search. Just being able to follow through this, called this, called this? Well, the process tree actually shows, it's like the process explorer process tree. Mm -hmm. You open it up and then you can, what I'll do is I'll say, well, I want to find notepad, and so I go open the process tree and I find Notepad in it very quickly. Then there's uh, some buttons. 
on that dialog that will let you set a filter just for Notepad. Or if you're just looking at a tree of processes, it's parent and his children, and you want to see this their activity, mm-hmm. there's a button there for filtering that. So convenience things like that that people that I use all the time and that other people probably don't because they're not just not aware that they're there. I to me I think the piece I'm going to spend the most time on is part three, the whole troubleshooting section of like uh, right off the bat, the case of the locked folder. I've had that. Why? I am administrator. Why won't you let me in this folder? Yeah, what's funny is Outlook is one of, is an egregious offender of the locked folder problem. Yes. Uh, if you've ever gotten an attachment, saved it to a folder, Outlook keeps a handle open to that folder, so you can't delete it until you change, until you open up Outlook and save something someplace else. Or exit Outlook, which is uh, extremely obnoxious. But it's also really hard to actually exit Outlook. Outlook doesn't like going away. Yeah, sometimes the UX is gone, but it's still there. Yeah, and it's still hanging on to that handle. Yeah, and then oh, yeah, and that's another great one. When that happens, and then you start Outlook again, it'll say, "I can't remember what that dialogue is. Some bizarre error." Yeah, which doesn't indicate anything to you, but the fact that there's another instance of it already running, it's like unknown error, something. Yeah. But the, the crazy part is, and the correct way to fix it is to save another attachment somewhere else. Yeah. And then it's all better. And Process uh, Monitor or Process Explorer, well, actually, Process Explorer in this case will tell you that with a locked handle. Yeah. Uh, by searching for that directory, you'll see that it keeps the handle open. And that actually keeps the handle open because it's current directory, which Process Explorer also shows you. That's what keeps the handle open. It changes its current directory to that folder. So under the covers, when you call the change current directory API, Windows goes and opens the handle to the directory to make sure it doesn't go away on you. Aaron, uh, any favorite areas of this? How much do you think you really need to understand about Windows before you can even get started with these tools? Uh, well, it, it varies depending on the tool and what level of detail you're looking at. Uh, some of the tools, like uh, the uh, RAM map, uh, covers, you know, you, you really need to have a pretty good understanding of uh, memory management uh, to uh, to really get the most out of that tool or to get really anything out of that tool. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not one that most people are going to go use. Uh, process Monitor, Process Explorer, Auto Runs, those, you can get a lot of information without having to go really deep into Windows. Um, of course, you can also use that information for the wrong reasons. Uh, we see a lot of, you know, new uh, PC magazines, uh, not naming any names, that say that Process Explorer is the best tool out there for uh, solving your problems because you can find a process and you don't know what it is, so you just go ahead and kill the process. What could uh, go wrong? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, you, you, can, you can shoot yourself in the foot with these tools as well. Um, but uh, there is actually a, a whole section uh, at the uh, or chapter called Windows Core Concepts, which delves into here's some of the core stuff uh, that will probably be useful to you as you're using the tools. And it actually explains uh, some areas of Windows that have not been documented quite this way before. I think uh, you know, some people will read it and come away with a different understanding of, um, for example, terminal services sessions than they had before and how, how core that actually is to all of Windows today. That that's always there? Yeah, terminal services is part of Windows all the time. Right. And that has some impact on a bunch of things that people don't understand, perhaps as well as they might. And and I think folks still wrestle over the th- one of the things you've been a huge advocate of was this idea of a single account that normally runs as a regular user, but then is promoted to administrator when needed. 
the the Unix pseudo concepts. Yeah, kind of like that. Um, it's not that I promote that. It was uh, just really useful for me uh, a lot on Windows XP and actually still today on Windows 7 uh, to be able to you know, have a single identity that uh, didn't have admin rights on the local machine, uh, could get to domain resources on the network, and then do things on the local machine as that user account, uh, but with full admin rights. Um, and that did influence uh, user account control and the protected administrator concept. Mm -hmm. um, I think uh, going forward, you know, now that that is a core scenario and the attackers are going to start uh, going after that, um, it's there as a convenience, but it's not something we want to live with permanently. So you actually feel like we need to go ultimately away from the make me a min kind of approach to things and create separate accounts for stuff? Yeah, I think so. I think it's gonna it's gonna need to go there. I mean, the big change now is that flipping between users on a on a workstation is not as big a deal as it used to be. So you could easily log in another account that is your min account, do what you need to do, log back out, go back to the old place, and you have your old account and not lost anything. Yeah, uh, fast user switching is now available on you know even if you're joined to a domain, you can still use fast user switching, and uh, that's really the safest way uh, on a single machine to perform administrative tasks is to switch to another user account um, or to a separate user session to do that work. I don't see my wife uh, doing that, though. Well, the, the question is, how often does your wife need to be admin? Well, the problem is that she doesn't know, and right. it's hard for me to know, too. Um, it's probably pretty rare, but, you know, the Adobe Flash inst uh, updater, requires you to be interactive and to accept a UAC prompt. Right. I mean, there's all sorts of crap like that. Yeah. You know, I've, I've been running a domain in my house, and my daughters, who are now teenagers, have lived most of their lives uh, as regular users on their machines and are used to pinging me down in my office or remotely to say, hey, I need to update Flash. And I would remotely take control of their machine, you know, make myself an administrator, do their update, and leave again. Which is fine when you're handling two daughters, but it's just yeah. not. Well, and also when you're sophisticated about it too. But yeah. uh, most households yeah. aren't, right? No, yeah, That's true. Most That's houses true. don't have that person who can simply do that. But I, yeah. I realize, I don't even think of it. It's literally been ten something years of running a domain in the house that the and the girls have always lived like this, so they're just used to it now. Uh, but it's not normal. It's it's not, and it's not scalable to an enterprise level problem. We don't. We still haven't answered this one well. I mean, I don't think we've got a good solution. No, to actually, um, I don't. I, so there, I don't think that there is a, a a really good solution for the Windows desktop as we know it. I think that uh, the way that the mobile OSs have gone is really the the future, which is to have app stores and to have which vet the software before it gets to the end user, right? And then to have. Uh, isolation boundaries that are designed from the start to try to contain malicious software if it does slip through. And, and is there, there's an equivalent model here of, uh, of an enterprise running a group of apps with their own updaters internal to the network, and the users can select from those apps only and, and auto-install and keep up to date and so forth. We've actually got, I think uh, in the enterprise, I think uh, the picture is a lot brighter than you're making it look, Mark. I think we actually have a lot of that uh, available, if not actually deployed at, at, in uh, customer environments. But uh, the end user should never need to do anything that requires admin rights. No software should expect the logged-in user to 
you know, have the permissions to do things, but we do have the capability of uh, providing on-demand installation of a previously approved software. Yeah, I think the problem is broader than just admin, though, Aaron. Uh, today, and today there's a significant percentage of malware now that works just great with standard user rights. So it's not... Well, that's true. ...that you're not going to run with admin makes you secure. Uh, the, the threat's much broader than that, and that's what I'm really talking about when the, in the mobile OS space. I see. Yep. Has zero day grabbed your attention so much, Mark, that you you know you paid a pretty grim picture in zero day? Yeah, I think. I mean, that's kind of the angle that I'm, I come at this, um, and I think that just over the if you look at what's happened over the past few months, the things that have made the headlines, who, and who knows what hasn't made headlines? Yes, it's probably much worse than what we're seeing. It, that I, I think that the scenario that I paint in zero day, I mean, just. Uh, all it takes is a simple thought exercise. Your wife, I don't know about your wife, but my wife gets crap from her friends all the time. Yep. Video, you know, PowerPoint uh, presentations um, that are cute and or interesting, and she just opens that up and because it, it came from her friends. Right. Who knows what's in those things? Um, and all it takes is something malicious to get into that those kinds of you know, chain things, and that's one way in that. Basically, people are just opening the door and and escorting them into the house. But uh, the zero-day vulnerabilities in in software that are coming out all the time, uh, the spear phishing attacks, the the fact that you can drop USB keys still in front of just about any office building and get into that office network. Yeah, apparently that works in Iran. Yeah, it, exactly. <laughs> it works everywhere, really. Yeah. I mean, I, I really would... Uh, Doubt that there's any built office building that that wouldn't work in front of. Yeah, yeah that that part is remarkable. It's just how good the USB key in the parking lot vector is. It just yeah, so, keeps working. So the social engineering aspects of it, the weak technology aspects of it, it's just not a good situation. And uh, I've recently had this conversation, but we still can't seem to solve the password problem. Yeah, that's that's another one that uh, it's it's. Uh, Kind of amazing that on the web we're still all typing in passwords and everybody's using the same one everywhere they go. Yep, that's true. But this is not sysinternals. Well, how much yeah, is it's not how security centric is is sysinternals? There are pieces here. I mean, obviously we talked about the conflict around folders and things like that. I think people really get tangled up with ACLs and so forth these days. Uh, how do we help them with these tools? Well. Uh, most people actually don't even understand ACLs. Right. So this is an example of some of the tools that are really aimed at an advanced IT pro that, uh, like Aaron and the people Aaron works with. Uh, there's a few tools in the Sysinternals utility list that uh, are specifically focused on different kinds of ACLs and showing you what are going on with ACLs. One of them is called uh, ShareNum, which will show you the shares that are accessible from your system mm-hmm. or on the domain and the ACLs on them. Another one's called Access Anum, pointed at a particular registry branch or file system branch, and it will show you where permissions change in the tree right. and who has effective access to those resources. And then Access Check will show you the effective permissions as well as it can calculate them on, on files, directories, services, all sorts of other objects that uh, you're, you're interested in. Um, and I'm probably missing some, Aaron. What other ones? Yeah, access check can also show you uh, the actual ACLs as well as the effective permissions. Um, you know, process monitor, of course, can show you when you're hitting access denied, which right. uh, 
is often the key to finding where the problem yeah, is. Yeah, because quite often that error doesn't bubble up well. You don't know that you're hitting an access denied. It's getting caught by an application who's barfing a useless error message, and you don't know that it's a privileges problem. Yeah, and Process Explorer also will show you the access that the application requested. Right, which is, yeah, well. normally don't get to see. Process Monitor. I mean, Process Monitor, yeah. Yeah, that that's a that's a huge one, and I love the access enum for finding out where some junior admin changed privileges in a su- in a subfolder that is interfering with the higher level folders privileges trickle down. Yeah, and that's another one that'll just drive you crazy. It all works except right there. Why doesn't it work there? The other aspect yeah. of sys internals that is somewhat security related is that that there are a number of tools that are useful for hunting down malware or that have features that I've put in it, put in them specifically for hunting down malware. And uh, I just actually gave a talk at Black Hat a couple of weeks ago called Zero Day Malware Cleaning with the Sysinternals Tools, which hmm. was a two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour talk on using Process Monitor, Auto Run, Sig Check, Strings, and Process Monitor for hunting malware with real examples that people have sent me and also... Uh, look at the Stuxnet virus and watching it infect a system with the internals tools watching. And if we've all read Zero Day, then we know we've got the rootkit piece and the payload piece and the timer piece. So, you know, the rootkit stuff, I think, scares me the most. Can we really reveal stuff that's doing its best to hide from uh, antivirus with Process Monitor? Uh, well, actually, that's a, a really scary aspect of the way that malware is uh, developing now. And I, I actually, on one hand, I'm surprised it's taken this long. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it is a frightening that they've got this level of sophistication is just stunning at this point. Uh, Aluron, Alurion, A-L-U-R-E-O-N, this virus was discovered last summer. It was the, it's the first 64-bit rootkit for Windows mm-hmm. virus. And it infects, it's, if you remember old DOS, Boot, uh, flop, uh, floppies where the boot sector was infected or the MBR of the hard disk was infected with the virus and right. masked its presence, some of the original rootkits for Windows or for PCs. This looks like that, where it infects the MBR of the hard disk. It creates a, basically a secret stored location that's outside the partitioned space of the disk so that normal tools can't see it and pulls its files out of there infects the system live. And, and when you watch an infection of this thing on the system, it's basically like watching a submarine go beneath the surface and then disappearing. Uh, you see just a few traces of it submerging. You see it install a driver, but then once it's installed the driver and activated, it's gone. You can't, use, you can't see it in traditional tools very easily, unless you know exactly what to look for. Um, and even then, it has a very small footprint. Let me go back to the uh, admin thing, because... Uh... You know, this is one area where users not having admin rights actually makes a big difference because uh, the rootkits that are out there all require administrative privileges in order to get installed. Well, actually, that's not true, Aaron. Uh, you can have a rootkit, user mode rootkit that doesn't require admin rights. It'll still hide from that user account. Yes, uh, but no one's using those techniques. Yeah, they are. That I've seen. Actually, Stuxnet uses them. So Stuxnet was actually a user mode rootkit. It includes a user mode rootkit component, yeah, that hides. Uh, so it in, its primary infection vector was off USB keys, like we discussed. Once it infects the system, it cloaks the files that were on the USB key hmm. uh, by in, uh, intercepting calls in Explorer. 
One of the things that's a confusing point is there's user mode and there's user rights, which are not the same thing. Well, it's accessing, it's running with standard user rights and it's user mode. Okay. Um, okay. And was it, but then it was looking for a elevation of privilege exploit as well, right? To install its drivers, it, yeah. If it doesn't have admin rights, it, it leveraged one of two zero day vulnerabilities one that was, uh, works on XP and the other one that works on Windows, uh, Vista and Windows 7, or did. Okay to gain admin rights to install the drivers. But the rootkit part of it didn't require admin rights. Now, with a user mode rootkit like that, wouldn't an administrator be able to see it and clean it fairly painlessly? An administrator, actually, this is another interesting point about malware. You've got to know it's there to know that you want to clean it. And a lot of times knowing it's there means you've got to know, it's got to have some symptom for you to, you know, it's like the, if somebody doesn't, if somebody that's sick doesn't have any symptoms, it's really hard to know that they're sick. Yeah, and you can look at them and give them a health check, but if the health check's not looking in the right place, you're not going to see that they're sick. And that's the way that these some of these viruses are. Uh, these, especially these days, back in the old days, viruses were loud and noisy and popped up in your face. And there's still classes of that, the scareware class of viruses that will try to get you know basically take your machine hostage until you pay them. To, for the fake anti-malware, right? But most malware these days is aimed at uh, cybercrime or or espionage, and these things, their whole point in life is to stay as hidden as possible, so that you don't see the symptoms and you that and you don't get concerned and go try to hunt them down. And yeah, get it, rid of them. It's not actually in their interest to be noisy; they want to stay quiet. It sounds yeah. like we should do a show on Stuxnet because I, you know, you just tipped me off at a couple more things. This thing was way more sophisticated than anybody thought. Yeah, it's a pretty amazing piece of work from a, from a uh, malware technology perspective. For sure. You know, you know that uh, Mark Rusinovich actually wrote it, the promoted <laughs> novel. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, That's I, what Aaron's theory is. I do know there's a number of, I, I have sat amongst groups of, re, of genuine white hat folks who said, you know, these virus makers are idiots. If we were going to make a virus, here's what we do. And, you know, we think a much deeper level about how we could exploit the system. And then you get scared. It's like, yeah, I'm really glad we're not doing this. Because if well, we did. Part of, that's, that's part of the uh, motivation, part of the, the thought that led to the book Zero Day was mm-hmm. me and Bryce Cogswell. I mean, just having... You know, chatting in back in Winternal's days, uh, you know, I'd walk into his office or we'd, he'd walk into mine, we'd be discussing computer security, and we'd start to say, well, what if we were really bad guys? And you quickly realize that if you're smart, um, you can cause a lot of damage. Yeah. I mean, and the guys at Anonymous are kind of showing that. What's really funny about the Anonymous guys is that they'll warn the people, hey, we're going to hack you. And despite the warning, they're still hacked. Yeah. Which is it, which is all the more compelling, actually. Yeah. I mean, we're in an interesting place here, where this, the skills of the most skilled people are so dramatically higher than the skills of the average person in the industry. Yeah. Uh, I want to jump back to Sysinternals before we run out of time here, guys. Uh, the disutility set, I think, is something that most people need to spend more time on in general. Uh, any favorites here? I, I think this to VHD is a piece of genius. The most useful tool. You know, oh, that one... Um, I, that one was just a, a lot of fun to write. Yeah, uh, Bryce and I wrote that, and it was just cool to write something that takes a um, your you know your laptop and converts it into a virtual machine, basically with the click of a button. And so uh, when I f- finished writing that, I went around and converted all my machines to virtual machines. Because you and, could, uh, 
Yeah, just because I could. And <laughs> well, I can't tell you how many times I've rescued damaged data using that. Snap the machine into VHDs and then practice the recovery over and over and over again, rolling back to the original state till we've got it perfect, a per- completely clean recovery. It just makes that whole scenario simple that we can do we can uh, I mean, do something dangerous, but be able to roll it back with no consequence until we have it perfect. Yeah. Uh, what else? Do we still need to defrag pages on? I, I see page defrag is there, but do we still do that? Is that necessary? Um, well, page defrag actually it hasn't been updated for 64-bit or for Vista or higher. Okay. It's the 32-bit XP only program. And that's because I think it's kind of outlived its usefulness. Um, most of the files that it defrags are defragmentable while the system is online and operating in Windows Vista and higher. So, right. So, all, um, all of that's evolved. Yeah, that's all evolved kind of past the lifetime of that. And the other tool that I spent a ton of time on uh, is on the network side is Portmon. I just think it's one of those things. There's another way of watching for real viruses is, you know, when they communicate. Um, are you referring to Portmon or TCP view? Well, I think both are useful, but maybe we better explain them. All right. Well, Port- Portmon's actually a serial port monitor. So, all right. And the- and a lot of systems don't even have serial ports. Not anymore, yeah. It's pretty yeah. much a dead technology, yeah. too. And yeah. It, yeah, it's also not, it won't work on 64-bit either. Right. right. But TCP view. TCP view, right. That, that's the one I think you might be referring to, which um, it's like Netstat, GUI Netstat. Yeah. Which will show you um, now uh, with more recent release, I guess within the last year, I updated it so that it uses ETW to show you network traffic statistics for each port as well. Mm-hmm. So you can see how much in it is going in and out, how many requests are going in and out of a particular connection. Well, just watching what apps on your machine have connections out of the network, you know, out of your machine is useful. Yeah, well, that's, that's actually one way to identify malware. Mm-hmm. If it has a persistent connection open to the outside world, you're going to see something fishy in that list. Yeah, although that, that's almost sloppy on their part. You should pop up, yeah. communicate, and get out. Yeah, firewall logs, uh, network logs. Uh, process monitor will also also use ETW to, to capture network activity, so you'd see it in there as well. But it's hard to hide from ETW because ETW is actually in the TCP/IP stack. So it would take uh, basically creating your own stack or going to ICMP or something to communicate without being visible to that. Are you giving tips now, Mark? Is that what you're doing? Uh, yeah, exactly. It's part of the, that exercise we were talking about earlier. <laughs> Well, gentlemen, we're just about out of time. Any pieces you want to call out uh, th- where, where folks should look? I could see it's on Amazon, and I can get it as a Kindle book, thank goodness. Um, well, so the, I guess, um, why don't we tell you our favorite tools? Absolutely. And, Aaron, you uh, go first. I run Process Explorer all the time. I run Zoomit all the time. I have both in the startup group on my computers. Um, I used to use BG Info, but haven't used it for a while. Uh, Process Monitor, of course, is the top diagnostic tool when you're trying to figure out what the heck is going on. Uh, I use um, SigCheck an awful lot. Just to validate that apps are what they say they are, that files are intact? Yeah, uh, to verify, you know, is this signed uh, and by whom and when? And also, does this thing have a a manifest, uh, a UAC manifest? And Mm -hmm. also just to look at the version information because... FileVer doesn't come with uh, Windows anymore, and I always have the SysInternals tools, so I can use SigCheck with dash A just to look at the version information on the file. 
Interesting. And, and, and you know, I, I just quite, I question how many folks know they should even look. Like, what, tri- what prompts you, Aaron, to run a SIG check on a file? Hmm. Um, just trying to find out, you know, where it's from, uh, who signed it, right. who owns it. So when it, when it arrives in your inbox kind of thing, or it's on a, uh, on a USB key, you just go and take a look at anything? Uh, I rarely put USB keys uh, front that people hand me. I never put them on my computer. Nice. So that, that, that never comes up. Uh, no, stuff is already installed typically. SigCheck is also one of the tools that I, I mentioned that I cover in that malware cleaning. And it's useful for uh, chip verifying signatures on files. If files that are unsigned are ones that you should examine more closely to see if you can figure out their true origin. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, you used to be able to trust signatures. Um, but uh, Stuxnet showed us that even those you can't really trust, Stuxnet made use of two stolen certificates to sign its drivers using the keys of actual hardware OEMs. Wow. You know, you're in a grim place, Mark. What's your favorite tool? <laughs> um, my favorite tool is actually Zoomit, um, which I use all the time in my presentations. Uh, which lets, it lets me zoom in and draw on the screen with arrows and boxes so that I can highlight things that I'm talking about. And so people in the back of the room can see what's going on. Sure. Uh, it's nothing more annoying than going to a technical presentation in a reasonably large room being near the back and the speaker's talking about, well, you can see that blah, 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 and the text is, you know, they've, they've left it with the default eight-point font. And, yeah. No, we can't um, see. <laughs> yeah, you know, right, you can't see. <laughs> um, but like Aaron, I also use it every day on my desktop. If somebody, it's really useful when somebody comes into my office and we're looking at a document on the screen or an email, I'll zoom in on it so that we both can see it mm-hmm. really clearly. So not just for presentations. Zoom it is for two people collaborating over the shoulder. Yep. Awesome. Or just me. You know, I don't usually have someone coming into my office, but I'll often zoom in on something. So that's why I always have it running. Nice. Well, gentlemen, uh, obviously a great set of tools. It's so nice to have a book that uh, helps us understand how to use them well. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Thanks, Richard. Thanks for having us. And uh, Mark, I got to call you back on the Stuxnet thing because you know every time you talk about it, I get more excited about it. I think people need to know more about how sophisticated viruses have gotten. Yeah, it's a pretty pretty interesting story. All right, uh, and thanks again, and we'll talk to you next week on Run As Radio. Mm-hmm.